We're in part three of our series, Verses We Groove To, and I've chosen Luke 9, 23. Probably memorized this in third grade for some Awana deal, and I've entitled my sermon, Following Jesus, It's Not What You Think. Let's look at the verse, and we'll take it apart today. And he said to all, if any one, and in the King James, any man, but any one would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, I read that, and that causes me to ask these kinds of questions. Am I good enough? Even though I've been a Christian for years, this seems like a big-time commitment. What are the marks of true commitment, and, and do I measure up? And maybe you feel like that sometimes. You look at yourself and you say, maybe I'm kind of a second-class Christian because I tend to compare myself to other people. And is there a secret to the Christian life? Because I'm a little confused. On this end of the spectrum, we hear people talk about a simple trust in Jesus, kind of almost an easy believism, which seems great. I'm in for that. And then you have other people who say that salvation is something way over here where it's kind of like this lordship thing, like if you don't sacrifice everything and at the point you come to Christ, you, 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 you've got to give up all everything and addictions and change. Your life has to be completely different. Well, there's a big difference between what that's about and what this is about. And this verse is going to be right in the middle, and I'll explain that in just a moment. And it's not surprising that we're a little confused. D.A. Carson put it well in his book, For the Love of God. He says, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. I want to give you two statements and questions about context here as we continued. This passage is about being sold out to Jesus, but you may be surprised about the implications for what that means. So I'm going to ask two questions. Here's a proposition in the context. What does being sold out to Jesus really involve? And what's the litmus test of being all in? Let's put that on the slide. What is the litmus test of being all in? Now, I don't know this by personal experience, but apparently being all in is a poker term. Some of you know that. If you're playing Texas Hold'em and you're going to win, then take the pot. You put all your money in. And so to speak, what does it mean to be all in for Jesus? Now, with that as a backdrop, let me continue the context because you need to understand where this falls in the life of Christ. Jesus is calling his disciples to a greater commitment that goes far beyond a salvation message. And I'm going to explain this very uh, easily for us in just a moment. But let's just say everything to the left of the cross represents the salvation process. And this after the cross represents the sanctification process. And oh, by the way, after you die, what's that process? It's called the glorification process. Three kind of big you know, theological terms, salvation, sanctification, glorification. So Jesus is saying, hey, you're here. They want more. He, they want more of him. And so this is a call and a message today for those of you who are here and want more of Jesus. 
It's not for people who are here thinking they've got to earn their way to the cross, and I'll illustrate that in a moment. So Jesus, in verse 14 in this text, has just fed the 5,000, and people are asking, who is this guy? Kind of like the old movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who are those guys? People are asking, who is this guy? Peter says, you're, Jesus. you're the Messiah. You are the God that we're searching for. So Jesus kind of cracks the window into his, into his life, lets him take a sneak peek, and it's the first open prediction of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, you're saying, when does this verse happen in the three-and-a-half-year uh, ministry of Christ? This is two-and-a-half years into his ministry. These guys aren't rookies. They've, they're, they're veterans. They've, they've gone to war, so to speak. They've been on numerous evangelistic trips with them. They've watched Jesus heal people and do miraculous things. And it's one year from his death, burial, and resurrection. And so this is kind of go time as they move that direction. So in light of what's going to happen to him, he outlines this three-point plan. Now, sometimes you look at that and go, well, are there three parts to this? Or maybe the first two parts are what you do, and then you end up following Jesus. However you want to look at it, the end result is, what is the cost of being a disciple? Not the cost of what salvation is. What is the cost of being a disciple post that decision? Now, time out, disclaimer, write this down in your notes so you never get this wrong. This isn't a work harder, I got to work harder to please Jesus sermon not where I'm headed, all right? This isn't uh, me adding a spiritual burden or laying some legalistic guilt trip about what you're not doing. In fact, that's the last thing I would want to do this morning, the last thing. This is not about guilt. This is about grace. And we know from experience our Christian walk isn't just up and to the right. We meander. We kind of go backwards. We mess up. We get stalled out. And so this is a message for anybody who says, I know I'm a believer, but I want more of him today. I know that there's more to the Christian life than me just kind of fiddling around. And so this is a message for what Jesus expected for those who are already Christ followers. Now, I want to illustrate this so there's no mistake about what I'm talking about. So I'm going to need Jesus to come. So Jesus is somewhere. I know he's in the building Jesus is here. Anzic, you're going to play Jesus, so would you stand at the cross for me? And then I need someone like far from God, you know, a sinner who needs saving by grace. I think Scott would be a good guy for that, all right? So let's illustrate what the salvation process is and what the... You're going to stand right here, Anzic, and uh, you can actually stand on the floor because you're really tall. You can stand on the floor and stand to the right of the cross and you can come right here near the cross because you need to die on it soon. All right, so, um, and then, Scott, you got to get all the way to the end here and uh, take the very last one and get as far away and hold that up as high as you can. And this represents the journey of faith, all right? And each one of these bandanas represent times in your life where God was drawing you to himself. Remember, it's not our works that get us to Jesus. It's not because we try hard and we're trying to pull ourselves up into heaven, but Jesus has gently been calling you all your life. Now, you may be in the eye saying you've never made a decision for Christ. Listen carefully to what I'm talking about. 
Others of you have said, I've made this decision, and then listen to the next part, and we'll make sure we're clear. So what happens is, way back when, you grew up in a Christian home, and Jesus starts gently bringing you towards himself, because you're listening to mom and dad, and they have devotions, and you, you know, eat all your peas, and then he, you know, God, uh, dad says, hey, we should have some prayer time. And sometimes you'd listen to your parents, and sometimes you resisted, and you kind of pulled away, and God didn't let you go. But you didn't get your way, and God didn't let you go. So then you go to Awana, and you listen to Russ Livergood, and they give an invitation when you're in third or fourth grade, but you're not ready yet. But Jesus never, ever gives up on you. And so he gently calls you himself. Then you got into junior high, and Chris gave a message, or you went to Hume Lake in high school, and that was the time. And maybe you made a decision for Christ, or maybe you didn't. But notice that there is no effort that's being done on this end. It's Jesus gently bringing us to a point of commitment. And some point in your Christian life, you get to the point where you literally kneel at the foot of the cross and you give your life to Christ. And did you have anything to do with that? No, it was Jesus bringing you to himself. That's the essence of salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That, my friends, is the salvation process. Let's hear it for our two uh, volunteers. But then this verse comes in, and it talks about, so now you've made a commitment to Christ. What is next? And this is what Jesus says is next. Now, one other little clarification that might help you think this through. Many of you remember that process and you remember the day that you gave your life to Christ. I call you light switch Christians. How many know the day, you know the time, you remember it well when you came to Christ, all right? You're light switch Christians. For me, it's January 8th, 1963. I think you know this, first grade, Christian school teacher. She did her version of sinners in the hands of an angry God. I didn't want to go to hell. I signed up for heaven. 24 of us signed up for heaven, not hell. It was a good day, right? <laughs> Billy Graham had nothing on that first grade teacher. Now, others of you are what I call dimmer switch Christians. That became very clear to me. It's something, a light bulb literally went on this year. I did so many membership interviews, and as we're talking about when you came to faith in Christ, people told me these stories over and over again. I know I wasn't saved back here, but it was like a dimmer switch and I don't know when I actually made a decision, but now the light is on. And looking back, somewhere in this process, I know I gave my life to Christ. How many of you are more like dimmer switch Christians? Don't remember the day, but you know for sure that God's in your life. Either is okay, but the bottom line is you know that God is number one in your life, that he is your Savior. So with that as a backdrop... Let's look at what this love relationship looks like. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. Now, one last story, because I don't want us to mess up the difference between salvation and sanctification. I met a guy the other day through Matt McCormick who actually climbed Mount Everest. Let's look at the, the mountain there. And he climbed it. Do you know that the minimum cost probably, and he did it on the cheap, Cost him forty thousand dollars to climb that mountain. He says generally it's between seventy and hundred thousand. The permit along uh, loan from the Tibet government is fifteen thousand dollars, and that's paying for guides and oxygen and food and tents and all the help you need. Now, how many of you would like to climb Mount Everest? No, that sounds like a tough test. But some of you would do it. But you would climb it if it was what 
free if it was smaller. <laughs> if it was smaller. Always one in the crowd. You, if you were physically able to do it, you might do it if it was a gift. It was free. If someone paid your way, then you could do it. Same with salvation. Jesus paid the way. The trip to Everest is free. But what's the catch? You give the rest of your year, weeks, months, training, preparing, because you don't want to die on that mountain. And when you give your life to Christ, though the gift is entirely free, you spend the la- rest of your life serving him, and that's the process we're going to talk about. Because it may be free. The gift of salvation is free, but it is not cheap, right? It cost Jesus his life. And so he's saying, you want to know what's next? Let me tell you what's next from this part on. Three phrases. First one, deny yourself involves selflessness and submission. If anyone would come after me. The implication is not everybody wants to make this commitment. Many know the Lord, but not everybody wants this commitment here. Some of you may remember that song, If Any Man Come After Me, Let Him Deny Himself. Take Nobody ever has sung this song. Apparently, I grew up in the only Baptist church in the 60s that sang this song. I'm not going to sing it for you, but afterwards, encore performance right over here. Um, but it literally means come behind to be a follower, uh, to disregard your own interests, to lose sight of your self-interest and make your agenda second to the Lord Jesus Christ. Carrie Underwood got it right. Jesus, take the wheel. She's got good theology because a true follower who denies himself, literally, you know, dead to self, so to speak, recognizes that you are no longer in charge. You go from ownership to management of your life. Now, what's the problem when we say we're giving our life to Christ, we're going to die ourselves, he takes the wheel? What's the problem with that? The problem literally is we want to take the wheel back from him, right? We're driving the car, we say, Jesus, take over, we scoot over. If at first, you're not so sure, so you just scoot over to the passenger seat. And we got that. But then you're just like, yap, 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 turn here, turn there. And Jesus goes, I got this. And we realize that maybe we should just get in the back seat, put our headphones on, and let him take the wheel. But then it's worse because then we become a backseat driver to our spiritual life. Jesus is taking it this way. And by the way, it's always easier to follow Jesus when he agrees with the direction that I want to go anyway, Right? Oh, yeah, I can follow Jesus. I'm a champ. I'm going to do exactly where Jesus called me because I want to go this way. Jesus, come on, let's do this. And we kind of wave him over. And then what happens? We're sitting in the back seat spiritually where he's driving away. He takes us down a road we don't want to go. And so we reach over the front seat around his shoulders, grab the wheel, knock his hands off, and we're driving literally from the back seat. And we wonder why we're conflicted in this part of our spiritual life. And Christ says here, Deny yourself. It involves a little selflessness and submission. That's going to take discipline because our natural disposition is to want to be in charge, take control, and power up. That is how we are built. Now, some of you are sitting here, I get all this, but practically, what does that mean in life at ABF today in 2018? I think this is seen in very unheralded ways, in simple ways that we would never even think of. I think denying yourself is the mom who is patient with her toddler after the 17th milk spill, and without raising her voice, she cleans it up and lovingly hugs her and does not beat her child to an inch of his life. Some of you have been uh, that 
at the end of your rope. It's the dad who wrestles and reads to his kids before they go to bed, even though he's just worked a 14-hour day and he's so dead tired. It's the wife who cooks meal after meal after meal, oftentimes doesn't get to eat it because she's serving other people, and when she does eat, it's cold. It's the husband who gives up golf and all the other fun things he likes to do because he takes on a second job because he wants his kids to be able to go to a Christian school. He denies himself. It's the parents who forego these elaborate vacations because they really not like to have their kids have massive college debt as they work a little harder so they can maybe go to school and not have to pay all this thousands of dollars back. It's being selfless instead of selfish. Philippians 2, 4, do not look out after your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Don't regard yourself as more important than others. And maybe it's the candid admission that we can easily slip into an entitlement mentality and we don't even realize it. And the, the part about denying yourself, this idea of delayed gratification has some wonderful results because we may not see the results right now, but this idea of applying the principle of delayed gratification produces two wonderful spiritual results in your life. The first one is that when you are selfless and you're serving other people, you find purpose in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? One of the things I love about our church is so many young people serving and, and, and giving selflessly, you know, working at Camp EF, ABF, working on our tech team, on our worship teams, behind the scenes, all of us who get to serve. And I think about where was that serving mentality, like where was that brought to my attention in my life? And I, I realized while I was pounding nails in Mexico and missing my friends Pat and Bobby uh, on this work site and Scott, I, like I was the cutter. And if I have to cut one more thing, I'm so tired of cutting and sawdust in my face. And I thought back, when did I get my first taste of real serving? It was when I was 16 years old and I w went to Mexico for the first time. I wasn't cutting, making houses. We were preaching and doing evangelism and in the dirt and puppet, you know, kids on our back and jump ropes and all that. But some almost 50 years now, I've, I've been going to Mexico. And it's a big part of who I am in my core of, of, of reaching people who are far from God with the love of Christ through tangible acts of service. And so we learn that. We learn that maybe it gives us purpose in life. And secondly, when you deny yourself, the second practical delayed gratification result is you find peace with God, purpose with God, and peace with God. Because when you're in the center of His will, deny yourself, seeking only Him, you have this sense of peace. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. I know who my Savior is. I, I have this eternal destiny. I know His assurance is true. His promises are good. And I have that assurance. And I want to ask you today, have you ever made that decision where you finally yielded to Christ? If you haven't, let's talk afterwards. And then for those of you who have made the decision, we're going to talk about your next steps in just a moment. Secondly, it says, take up your cross daily. Taking up your cross daily involves suffering and sacrifice. Now, real quick, what doesn't this mean? Because we had a lot of wacky interpretations and preaching on this very Little, this little verse. It doesn't mean carrying a burden for the cause of Christ. 
Many people have mistaken this to mean that you're carrying this burden, uh, a strained relationship, a thankless job, a physical illness, and kind of with a self-pitying pride, you say, well, that's my cross to bear. I'll just have to carry it. That's not what Jesus meant. It also doesn't mean that, that uh, taking up your cross is literally that you've got to take a cross and walk across the country with it. Now, there's a guy who does that who's been doing it for like 30 years, and he's very good at sharing his faith. It gets people's attention. But God's not literally telling you to carry a cross. He's not literally telling you to get sacrificed. Like in the Philippines, every year there's these guys who crucify themselves. Um, and it's not a symbol. It's not, it's not jewelry around your neck. And I'm not saying you're, you're not wrong by wearing you know, a cross on your neck. But Billy Graham said it well. He said, when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up a cross, he wasn't saying, come, he, it's like he was saying, come and bring your electric chair with you. Take up the gas chamber and follow me. He didn't have a beautiful gold cross in mind. Here's what it does mean. It always means for the Christ follower, it always means suffering and ultimately death. Jesus' disciples weren't confused on this. They were clear. They knew exactly what he was getting at because they had seen people crucified, people who had been condemned to die via execution, a cruel Roman uh, method of, of killing someone, and they'd be paraded publicly through the streets, humiliated, carrying just the cross beam, not the whole thing because the longer part was there awaiting their execution. They'd be taunted and jeered at, spit upon, and what they were carrying would be the very instrument of their execution. If that wasn't clear, he makes it even more clear in verses 24 and 25, for whoever would save his life for my sake will lose it. For what does it profit a man that he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So this idea of taking up your cross involves suffering. It also involves this idea of sacrifice. Again, not popular terms, not in the top 100 theological terms that you'd want to hear on a Sunday morning like, oh, Pastor Buzzkill, let's talk about suffering and sacrifice. Glad I'm here today. I hope we get to the beach sooner. You know, uh, the bottom line is it does involve sacrifice though, doesn't it? Um, uh, it's like the proverbial uh, chicken and the pig at the orphanage and and the chicken says, hey, let's make some donations to the food drive for the orphanage. We, uh, we can uh, give them ham and eggs. The pig says, nothing doing. For you, that's just a contribution. For me, it's total commitment, right? So are we kind of giving our, our eggs to Jesus, a little contribution, or are we talking total sacrifice? It doesn't cost too much for the chicken to be all in, does it? But for the pig, that costs him his very life. Now, in this text, in Luke, it's also mentioned in a couple other passages, it has the idea of daily. Circle that in your Bible, daily. In other words, there's a repetitive aspect to this. Again, let's clarify, the salvation process, it's a one-time decision. You don't have to ask Jesus into your heart multiple times. But after salvation, there are many times where there's appropriate time to say, I'm kind of giving it all to Jesus again. I'm not getting saved over. I'm just, I want to commit again to the thing I've, I've said I was in allegiance to. And so that is this take up your cross daily. It's not just a one-time act. So I've said what it doesn't mean. What does it mean to take up your cross? I think there's four things. Number one, it does involve suffering. I went to Cornerstone Church several years ago to hear Francis Chan preach and I, it was the longest sermon I think I've ever heard anybody give in a worship service. His message was one hour and 23 minutes long. 
So, you know, I'm only 24 into mine. You know, we're good. I got plenty of time to finish this and land the plane. But he did a theology of suffering that was unbelievable. I've never heard a message like it. 66 books of the Bible going through the, the Bible talking about that suffering's in nearly every book of the Bible. It's a part of the Christian life. Not something that we kind of trumpet in this day and age of, oh, just let Jesus be your homeboy. You know, Jesus is my best friend. He couldn't be all of that. But it does mean that when you come into Christ, there, there's something after that. Secondly, it means that you're going to cling to God when everything in your life is being stripped away. Clinging to God when everything in your life is being stripped away. Some of you know exactly what that means. In the crash of 2008 and 9, you lost everything. You lost a house. You lost your life savings. You lost your 401ks. Some of you are in that financial stress even as we speak right now, and, and that's a one way God kind of gets our attention when we've got to give it all to Him. You see, your circumstances in your life reveal your character. They do not cause your character. How many of you have ever done a home renovation? Raise your hand, side. I want to see all the hands who have ever done home renovation. Why did you not tell me and warn me? Run, Forrest, run. Don't do this. Oh, my goodness. I want to blame the home renovation on my crankiness and my irritability and my shortness with my beautiful wife. But I got to admit, it's only revealing my character. John, you're an anxious person. Sometimes you're an angry person. Sometimes you're an irritable person. Because this is taking twice as long and twice the money. You, someone told me that. I did oh, It won't be twice the money. Yeah, it's twice the money. I'm telling you right now. Take it to the bank. Right? And they dig in a wall. Oh, now you got this. Oh, you got to fix this. Oh, you don't have that. Oh, my goodness. Lord Jesus, come quickly. You know? It reveals our character. Thirdly, take up your cross means we don't bail on our faith just because we have tough times. Now, we don't like reading it, but James 1 says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We'd like to erase that out, like, ah, oh, I just don't really want to go through that. Or John 16, in this world you will have troubles. Now, if we're completely honest and we're this side of the cross and we're growing with him, don't you want to whisper to Jesus sometimes like, enough with the trials for right now. I'm, I'm good with the endurance thing. Can we just kind of do a little couch potato spirituality just for a little bit? No, that's not the call because Jesus is saying, I want more of you. But more importantly today, I'm telling you, I want more of him. I want more of him. And lastly, it means that you make him the Lord of your life. And not just an easy believism, but saying, Jesus, I've committed you, and now I want to take the next step in that step of growth with you. And that takes some determination. Step three, and follow me. That involves service and separation. Uh, service and separation, following me. Uh, this idea of following, 78 times in the New Testament, it's used 77 times, it's used of following Jesus. That's who we follow. And the problem is, was when we follow somebody else. When you follow your favorite radio preacher, when you follow other Christians and feel like, oh, that's the epitome of where I want to be, and then they'll disappoint you. 
We'll always be disappointed if, if we compare ourselves to other people or other Christians who disappoint us. And it involves, as we said, this idea of service. This idea, uh, Augustine said well, when we give our life and follow Christ, because what happens is you get a mind through which Christ thinks, a heart through which Christ lives, a voice through which Christ speaks, and a hand through which Christ helps. That's the following me part that I'm talking about. Now, what does following Jesus involve? I want to suggest it's four areas of your life, and they all begin with T, all right? First of all, it involves your treasures. If Jesus is Lord of your life, moving towards Him, He's the Lord of your checkbook, your pocketbook, your visa card. He's in charge of your money. And I would suggest that if He's Lord, you're willing to tithe at least 10% of that income to God's work in the world. And sometimes you give, and hopefully you give sacrificially to Him. It involves your treasures. Secondly, it involves your trust. It's, it, it means you put your life in God's hands. We've talked about that. And, and, and we've said it's easy to, to trust Him when you agree with the direction He's taking you. But how about when we don't? Uh, it's well illustrated by... Uh, a history story uh, by a guy by the name of Cortez. Some of you know your history. He landed in Veracruz in 1519. He had 700 men on 11 ships. They land, and they're going into the Mexican interior. And what's the very first thing Cortez does before they get any farther? He burns the ships. There's no retreating. There is no going back. That's, that's commitment. That's like, men, we're all in because we're going to live here or we're going to die here. We're going to make a new life. When you come to the foot of the cross and you're moving this direction, we're burning the ships. We're saying, that's the old life. The old is past, the new has come. And a lot of us don't really want to burden the ships. We want to put one foot in the Word and one foot in the world, and we kind of vacillate from time to time. Faith and trust is putting your life in God's hands. I think I've probably told this story, but it bears repeating uh, about a time where this was really illustrated to me, what it means to give up to self. It embodies this kind of whole story. I took 100 high school kids snorkeling back in the day. We're down on a, uh, a, a, a spring break trip in Panama City Beach, Florida, and uh, we're out snorkeling. How many of you are snorkelers? You know what I'm talking about. You know, a little thing there. You're not scuba divers, but you're snorkeled. Well, there's a couple important things you should know when you're snorkeling in an open ocean. Number one, what direction is the current going in relationship to the boat? I had no idea I was in a six-knot current going out into the Gulf of Mexico. Would have been good to know that. Secondly, when they blow that whistle, that means it applies to you, <laughs> that you ought to, ought to listen to that whistle and you come back to the boat. So I'm snorkeling. I hear whistle after whistle. I'm thinking, oh, somebody's in trouble. They're kicking them. They're sending them back to the boat. I finally look up at the last, and I'm like 900 feet, three football fields away from the boat. And this is not a physique that's a swimmer's physique. Let's just put it that way. I'm a long ways away. And I told this story in Mexico, and this poor translator is trying to, you know, interpret this. So I'm swimming, and I'm going to, I can get back. I'm swimming in, and I realize every one of the high school kids are on the boat except for me. And I'm swimming, and I'm swimming, and I'm getting more tired, and I'm, and I'm swimming for 22 minutes, and I'm getting nowhere. 
Chuck Swindoll's walk, three steps forward, two steps back. I'm like three strokes forward, nine strokes back. Not steps, I'm, I'm, I'm going to drown out here. Now, just sidebar, parents, it's really a buzzkill when the youth pastor dies on the trip. It's just not a good way to end a trip, start a trip, or be in the middle of a trip. And I'm thinking, this is not going to end well for me if I don't get to the boat, right? Now, it's interesting how kids respond to that. The girls are getting all nervous. They're on the boat. They're like, oh, don't let Pastor John die. And they're in prayer groups, and they're praying. The guys are over on the side, like, betting, like, I don't know, under, a, over, under, will he make it? Not so sure. And so I'm, I'm swimming in, and then, you know, on every boat, there's a captain, right? And he's got the one with the pipe, and he's the big cheese. And then there's, like, a couple of second mates, right? Well, the second mates are all these, like, 20-somethings that are, like, totally ripped, you know? And so this one second mate, like, takes off his shirt, and all the girls go, Ooh. No, they didn't. Anyway, he takes off his shirt, and he's, like, going to jump in and save me. Well, he's about to do it, and I'm like, I'm waving him off. I'm still like, you know, at least a football field away, 100 yards. I'm like, no, no, because I don't need saving. Oh, by the way, just sidebar, isn't that what happens with us and Jesus sometimes? I don't need you, Jesus. I can, I'm doing life just fine until God brought a circumstance in your life that you couldn't handle, and he tried to bring you to himself, and you say, no, I'm waving you off. I can do this. So I keep swimming, and I keep swimming, and the guy's like shaking, uh, like, and I'm thinking, maybe I am an idiot. Maybe I should like just let him come in and rescue me, but no, nah, I can't do that because I had too much what? Too much pride and ego, and by the way, it's the same things that keep us from Christ. It's pride and ego and self-defenses and, you know, all kinds of things. So I keep swimming, and now I'm getting close. I don't know how I got there, but it's been like over 30 minutes I'm exhausted. I go, I got one last push. And I realize I can't do it. And so second mate takes this, um, the white thing, life preserver, thank you, you win. And he does like the major like discus throw. And the rope goes like over my head and it's behind me. And now all I have to do is just grab onto it and I'm saved. And for a few moments, I thought, no, I can still do this. And isn't that what happened to some of you in your church? I've, time after time after time, God was reaching out. He sent you a life preserver. You said, no, I can still do it. And until you come to the end of yourself, that's what this message is about. Until you come to the end of yourself, you finally give them and said, yes. And you grab a hold. And even as I grab a hold and defeat, I'm feeling so bad because the, the youth pastor should not have to be rescued on this trip. They're pulling me in, and my, my memory of it is it was like I created a huge wake as I'm coming in, a shamu's coming in to dock. And the girls are cheering, the guys are going, here's your money, you know, and um, I was saved. Postscript to the story. So that was that day. That night, we go bungee jumping. And I'm thinking, you know, I died almost once. Let's do it again. And I hate heights. I hate heights. But I got snookered into I got a bungee jump. So I get up there. I'm 200 feet above the air. And I think you know the, the story. I look down on the stunt pillow. It's big and yellow. First of all, why do you need a pillow if you're just going to bungee jump? You're not supposed to hit it. That's a little unnerving. But on that stunt pillow, in black electrical tape, it said, Are you ready to meet Jesus? I am, because I nearly died in the water earlier, and I am ready to meet Jesus. But following him means you put your complete trust in him. 
We'll go quickly now. Thirdly, it involves your time. Does he get a part of every day? Does he get a part of your life every day? Are you in the word? George Barnes says less than half, only 46% of Christians even open their Bible once a week, and most of the time it's on a Sunday morning, not because they're spending time in the word. And does it involve your talents? Maybe God's calling you to do something else. Maybe this unemployment thing means that he's calling you to a different area of service. Maybe you should leave this career to do something else because God's pulling at your heart to serve him. I, I don't know what that means to you today. But maybe this morning it's a call like, I'm going to give my life to Christ for full-time service. I remember when I made that decision. It was 1976 at Urbana uh, a missions conference in Illinois. I was a sophomore in college, and it's that moment I realized I wanted to serve Christ the rest of my life. So that takes dedication. Well, I want to close this message because it's kind of an old school thought, you know, that we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about Jesus and, and what he wants to do in your life and, and more of him. And I want to read to you this testimony of a preacher who was martyred in Zimbabwe. I'm going to read it fast. And, but it kind of catches the essence and the urgency of this moment. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back. I let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I know life by faith, lean on His presence, walk by His patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with His power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, or ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, and prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all hear the gospel, go until he comes, and when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear, and I am his disciple. Amen? That's what I want, folks. It's not striving to, to be something I'm not. But this side of the cross, I, got, I don't know how long I have to do what I get to do. But I'm not going to squander it. I'm not going to waste time. I want more of Jesus in me so that when I interact with other people, there is an unmistakable mark that I'm a Christ follower. And I think there are many of you in the audience who want that. You've already trusted Christ, so if you come forward today, it's not because you need Jesus for salvation. You just want Jesus to have more of you in your sanctification. So that was my intent Thursday night, to have people come forward. And I want to say to my shame, I chickened out. There's no other better way. I just 
it was a smaller group, and I was afraid to invite people to come because all I thought was like, well, people aren't really going to come, and it's going to be embarrassing because like, oh, you know, I'm standing there by myself with Doug Flagg, and oh, boy. And then while I was praying, I was so convicted, after the service was over, I said, if you wanted to pray because you want Jesus to have more of you and you want more of him, I'll be over here pray. And one by one, six people came up because they needed an encounter with Jesus. We don't do this often. But there is a time where we say, I'm all in. I've made this decision, but now I'm all in. So I'm going to pray, and you get a chance to make a decision. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, as we think about what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow you, it does involve surrender. And I believe there are people today who want to acknowledge that in their own lives. And if you're saying today, I know I'm a believer, I'm all in. I want more of Jesus today. Would you look up at me? Say, so, yeah, that's, that's what I want. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All over this auditorium. So, Lord, I'd ask that if that's the case, that we wouldn't be embarrassed by that, that we'd come and we'd kneel at the foot of the cross and just be reminded again of why we're so thankful and we'd yield again to you the fact that our future is in your hands. No matter what we're going through, we want more of you and we want to surrender to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's what God did on the cross. And we spend the rest of our life living in such a way that we live in the reality that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Some of you may want to come forward, but you're just kind of chicken like I was Thursday night. We'll still be up here afterwards, and if you'd like to just say, hey, let's pray about this. Whatever it is, there'll be people up here ready to pray with you for whatever you want prayer for. And now we're going to pray a prayer blessing over you as a church. And now, to him who is able to keep you from falling, to the only wise God, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's love. Take care.